Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Sudden savage attack. It is indeed all this. The effect is sure. The premise is simple. It's a basic, primal confrontation, man-to-man. No excuses are offered. None except. Welcome to the latest edition of Longhorn Blitz with Horns247.com. Looks like a radio station. Now, here are your hosts, Lifetime Longhorn Rod Babers. Pure athlete, yeah. I transcend race, hombre. Matt Butler. I don't talk <laughs> man. I back it up. And we are chock full of that, man. right. And Jeff Howe. It's still real to me, damn it. <laughs> and that's the bottom line. Gaston Cold sets up. If you're gonna blitz... Come strong, but don't come at all. Coming strong with another edition of Longhorn Blitz with Horns 24-7. I am Jeff Howe. 27-20 loss to Washington in the Alamo Bowl is how the 2022 season, the second season of the Steve Sarkeesian era on the 40 Acres ends for Texas. And we'll talk about that game specifically and start to look ahead to 2023. We'll do that on this week's edition of the show. Before we go any further, wherever you're listening, however you're listening, we thank you so much for being a part of the presentation each and every week here on Longhorn Blitz. Your support is very much appreciated. Uh, a couple of ways you can get this podcast. The best way, though, anywhere you get your podcasts, whatever your app of choice is or streaming service of choice is, search Horns 24-7. That's Horns 247. Find the Horns 24-7 podcast feed. Click the follow button. Get every episode of The Blitz when it drops. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review special Saturday edition of the Blitz this week. And we'll be back on our normal recording schedule next week. No Rod Babers today. Rod is out. But with me is the master of the soundboard, the drop machine extraordinaire, our lead research analyst on Longhorn Blitz, and a daily fantasy guru. He is Matt Butler. How are you, sir? Doing pretty well, man. You have a good Christmas? Yeah, can't complain. How about yourself? Yep, I enjoyed it. And now looking forward to the new year. Yeah, let's just go ahead and dive in, Matt. Oh. Yep. Uh, you know, on, on the air, on Light the Tower, and I wrote about this on the site too, you know, I gave my three keys to a Longhorn victory, and all three of those things went against Texas. And when you look at, to me, when you look at the body of work for Texas this year, a little bit of everything that we saw in each of their four losses during the regular season showed up during this game. And the key areas for me were uh, the inability to get the run established. I my key to victory was don't abandon the run. You never really got it going in the first place to abandon it. Therefore, you didn't really get a chance to – you didn't have a choice to abandon it. Uh, my second key was winning on first and second down to help yourself on money downs. Mm-hmm. Money downs might have been the single biggest reason why Texas lost, both the inability to convert and what Washington converted – and third key was make your explosive plays matter. Make sure theirs don't. None of that happened for Texas. So you missed a couple explosives, and the one explosive play they got in the run game was one of their touchdowns. 
Uh, just like I said, man, and then you throw in the field position, you got a punt blocked, a combination of all the things that we talked about during the four losses showed up in the Alamo Bowl. Yep, and you could tell both teams, like, they came in because it sort of was a bizarro version of the game for the first half. We, everything you sort of expected to happen went the other direction, and it sort of played out that way for, like, the, the run game on both sides. I think the Texas run defense didn't perform nearly as well as – Texas would expect or Texas fans would expect. Talapapa looked like a different running back than the running back we had seen all season. He was hitting yeah. the hole hard, getting straight up field and running right at the Texas defense, sort of negating the speed. And you could tell with scheme they were able to find a few things that they thought were going to work. They didn't deviate from that, didn't try to get too cute. Like right out the gate, they were able to bust a big explosive with a trick play. But then across the board, you could tell, man, the Texas secondary actually played better than we expected. And they were able to sure. sort of fluster Penix out the gate. But then you could tell in-game adjustments and the ability for Washington to understand what Texas was doing against them and then to be able to adjust accordingly and sort of be patient with the pass game was Washington and taking what gave them underneath. And it's sort of what Texas did too. Texas yeah. became patient with the passing game and really started to move the ball at ease in the second half. But the main thing were the two run games, one performing well past expected being Washington against what was viewed as Texas's strength on defense. And then on the other side, Texas, you know, you, you saw the speed of Keelan Robinson. It was just there weren't the holes there initially yeah. for him to be able to bust them big. And then if you look at overall the front line, D-line versus the O-line, Texas's O-line wasn't able to break open the holes. So the Texas run game, not nearly as effective as you would hoped. Yeah, that was the biggest disappointment for me was we haven't seen, even in the TCU game, we haven't seen Texas lose the line of scrimmage battle in totality the way they lost it in this game. Yeah, I'd be interested to see the advanced box score because it was the one that we always talked about TCU being 3.6 inches. It was .1 yards Texas gained before being contacted. But when you have guys like Bishon and Roshan being normally more than four yards per carry after contact, they are only getting two per carry after contact because TCU was, you know, tackling so well and really understood what to do with their linebackers. But yeah, to your point, Washington's O line or D line pushed Texas around. Uh, if you give me just a sec, Matt, I can get you that number. I mean, I'm just doing some quick napkin math according yeah. to Pro Football Focus. Uh, so that's 158 total, 118 after contact divided by 27 rushing attempts. Uh, 1.48 yards before before contact for Washington. So decent. It's just you didn't have any yards after contact. Yeah, the backs averaging just one point eight six. One point four eight before contact. And then Washington. one point only one point eight after. So that can sort of show you when you tie them together, and you're most ineffective that you've been other than the yeah. TCU game. Uh, and the Alabama game was I think in the mid ones to low twos, but that was the 81 yard Jason McClellan touchdown run where he didn't get touched was a big reason for that. But it all played together, Matt. It all tied together, to use the term you just used, because it felt like the Washington offense said, okay, Texas is going to take away the deep ball, which I thought they did a really good job of. They hit the flea flicker on the on the first play from scrimmage. Michael Penix's next 31 completions, mm -hmm. none of them went longer than 18 yards, so they never hit the vertical shot. That, and I know you've I've seen some Washington this year. You've seen a lot more Washington mm -hmm. than I have. This is that was one of the best deep ball throwing teams in the country. I think Penix yep. coming into the game, he had twenty nine touchdown passes coming into the game. Fourteen of them were on passes of twenty yards plus down the field, so they could hit shots. 
but they settled for the short and intermediate stuff. And a lot of what you saw, Matt, it was some of the same stuff Rod's talked about, like some of the in-breaking routes, switch routes, uh, some bunch formations that gave Texas some fits, just the way they leveraged their formations, the route concepts they used uh, gave Texas some fits. But getting back to the totality of it, you didn't need to hit the deep shot because it felt like Washington got to a point in the game, especially in the second half, when they started, like, I don't know if you noticed this, man. I'm sure you did, but if you look at Washington's drive chart in the second half, it is, you can see where Texas just didn't give themselves enough opportunities. Like, one, the one series where you punted the football, that, in essence, kind of cost you the game because if you look at Washington in the second half, 16 plays, 74 yards field goal, 13 plays, 75 yards touchdown, 14 plays, 90 yards uh, and a touchdown, 13 plays, 38 yards, and a turnover on downs. But by the time you got the ball back on that turnover on downs, you had less than four and a half minutes left. Yeah, look at the amount of plays, as you talked to right there, looking at Washington, just the ball Glad control. Glad you brought that up, yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, 14-play drive, 9-play drive, then add in the time of possession, and you're getting points from all of them. You get some touchdown drives. When you're being able to get everything now, you can have those. I'm oh, sorry, the 16-play drive was the last drive of the second half, not to cut you off, but I'll get to why that's important here. Oh, yeah, for sure, man. And when you add all of those up together, it ends up being a reason that you end up seeing Texas not get the amount of opportunities to be able to come from behind once you dug in a hole. Yeah. Uh, give me just a second. I've got to do the math here real quick because I'm doing this on the fly. Again, we're recording. We're recording this. Yeah, we got uh, one of the dogs that uh, runs around the ARN compound up here is in the studio. So while Matt lets the dog out, um, so I think that's a first for us. On yeah, the I, well, we started recording. And I looked down and I saw Lou Dog was between my legs and underneath the table. I was like, oh, I wonder if he's going to want out during this whole thing. So before that, wa- that 16-play drive Washington had at the end of the first half, the play differential and that Texas drive was five yards, 30 plays, and a punt. Yeah, UW gets the ball back. I'm trying to see if I'm am I right on that. Uh, yeah, UW gets the ball back with 4.50 to go, and they burn the last 4.50 off the clock and get the field goal. Before that drive, Texas was plus five in play differential. Yeah, and Texas hadn't even received the – we got the kick to start the second half. And it was a one-score game. The rest of the game, Matt, from that yeah. point on, play differential – Washington was plus 28. Yeah, that's a difference. Yes. It's hard to overcome that, you know, yeah. like unless you – and that's the one thing about Texas all season. Texas was one of the most explosive teams in the country, so you could overcome these type of differentials whenever you're getting seven from it, and it doesn't matter that the other team – yeah, they can wear out your defense over time, but if you're getting seven, getting seven, getting seven, then those are the elite teams you can survive that. Like you've seen – there were games this year when like – Buffalo ended up having games that they won, and they ended up being like 40 or 50 down on a play differential, but it's because they're getting seven, getting points out of it. You have to be really good to do it. It's really a lot to ask your defense to be able to do that and be on the field that much and not be behind. Yeah, you had one of the most explosive offenses in the country in Washington. They only averaged not even five and a half per play, but the thing was, especially in the run game, to tie this all together, it felt like there was a point, starting with that drive I just mentioned, where they decided, hey, against Texas, man, a four-yard gain is a really good play. Mm-hmm. Because when you're – it's like they almost copied the Texas Tech game plan. It's like they said, look, we're going to give ourselves a mindset. We got four downs to get ten yards. And if you get yourself in manageable third downs and then a fourth and short, mm-hmm. you feel like you can convert it. 
Washington finished that game 11 for 20 on third downs, and they were two for three on fourth downs. Yep, and that's something that you wrote about inside your uh, three keys column and something that I had looked at throughout the season is us talking about, again, the amount of first downs that come on first or second down, and it really does also align with what we just talked about with the explosives. But when you have a team like Washington was one of the few outliers that could be a team that – because normally if you're really good or really bad on first and second down, it's a good example that you maybe aren't that good or that bad on offense. Mm -hmm. But they're the opposite because they have a strategy deployed that they're going to be a team that's going to be willing to go for it and see, all right, we're going to get need four to get ten, and therefore you can actually afford to not be very good on first and second because you bought in to the philosophy that you're going to be content with going forward on third and fourth the way Tech did when Tech beat Texas and allowed that to be the outlier game of college football by looking at just win probabilities. And it's when you convert, say, six of nine fourth downs or in this scenario where you have Washington on those money downs. Washington was a bottom 20 team on first and second down first downs, but they were a top 20 team on money down conversion and they were a team that when you have a good signal caller you can have trust in that guy to actually make those plays so it's i mean it's a mature college football team you very rarely get a mature college football team like that especially when you have changes but you have a quarterback that has a previous relationship with the coach from their previous stop even though he's you know viewed as just a junior another year he's had many years in college and it's coming back they had nobody opting out then you had young receivers but those receivers have two full seasons Mm -hmm. played 26 full games they're really talented and then they have depth like their receivers three four five they're tied in one two those are guys that all contributed all season long and they were sort of the team that didn't worry about injuries if you look at Washington they had all those guys almost all season long and they didn't have any opt-outs for this game either um and I think Washington and I don't know if Texas fans fell into the trap because I saw some people at least on the flagship message board at Horns 24-7 thinking this game was going to be a blowout in Texas' favor. That, oh, Washington's not that good. And I think their schedule was a little bit deceiving because mm-hmm. they, didn't, they didn't play USC and they didn't play Utah yeah. with that quirky Pac-12 schedule. But, man, Matt, you look at the teams they did play, like they beat Oregon State. They beat Oregon. Uh, they beat Oregon in Eugene. They won some quality football games. And, man, depending on – we're not going to know by the time we're done recording this, this will be out tomorrow, we're not going to know the result of the Sun Bowl UCLA's game against Pitt. Mm-hmm. Man, I think I think I counted last night. I think the Pac-12 could have six teams get to 10-plus wins. Yeah. they. Like I mean, Utah, Utah, USC, Oregon, Oregon State, and Washington. Yeah, Washington, they're already there, and UCLA can get there if they win their bowl game. Yeah, when you look at the SP+, Plus, it, it really shows – it's just a, a conference – uh, really good and really bad because you yes. can look at the there's bottom. No, there are very few. There's yeah. very little middle ground. <laughs> it's crazy, but like when you look at it across the board, like you said, you have Utah. According to Bill Conley's SP Plus is number ten team in the country and one of the few that's balanced. They're the top twenty uh, two defense offense, top twenty one defense. But then they have Oregon as the number twelve team in the country, number five offense, sixty five defense. USC number thirteen team in the country, number two offense. Number seventy-one defense. Now Washington. Well, that, that's not a Lincoln Riley team. That's part. That's Oklahoma. Exactly. Perfect. And then Washington, seventeen, and they were uh, number eleven offense, number fifty-nine defense. Then UCLA, twenty-first, number three offense, number eighty-four defense. That's a Chip Kelly team. <laughs> and then Oregon State, number twenty-two. That's 
44 offense, and the one team that sort of has like a, a, the makeup of, say, a Big 10 or a Big 12 team, a 24 defense, where you actually have a better defense than your offense. But right there, I believe I just counted out six teams inside the top 22 yeah. from the Pac-12, which is normally, that's like SEC that maybe a Big 10 or a Big 12 can have yeah. that type of territory. We had the 2019 year in the, in the Big 12 where yeah. like Baylor, OU, Texas, K-State, like there were – Several teams. Yeah, but uh, of those teams, none of them are inside the top 10. We're talking six yeah. of those between 10 and 22. And the thing is, is the Pac-12 gets disrespected because at the bottom, team number 124 out of 131 is Colorado. Then you have team, there's a handful of them that are down here in the hundreds. Uh, I know Cal ranks down there. Oh, yeah. I mean, just look at the win-loss records. I mean, you talk about there's going to be six double-digit win teams. If if UCLA wins their bowl game, you got Washington State at seven and six, but then Arizona had a losing record of five and seven. Cal had a losing record of four and eight. Arizona State fired their head coach and Herm Edwards. They finished three and nine. David Shaw resigned after Stanford went three and nine. Colorado, obviously, we know about the changes there. They went one and eleven. So, like you said, Matt, not very much middle ground in the Pac-12. You're either like a fringe top ten team, mm-hmm. or you're at the bottom of the barrel in Power Five. Exactly. So. That's where the conference can be a pretty weak conference overall, but the teams at the top, pretty respectful. And that, I mean, that, that sort of reminds me of what the Big 12 was in the 2000s because you had some really good teams and yeah. then you had some pretty crappy teams across the board. So you got to tip your hat to Washington. They played well. Texas had opportunities out they there. Did. Everybody knows of the drops late and those back to back plays. Who knows what would have happened if Texas got to overtime? Because overtime's type of scenario where you got to love Texas's offense in the way, even though Texas's defense didn't have their best game. When you start at the 25-yard line, it really sort of shrinks up the field a bit. And if you could just, you know, have it when you can expect teams to maybe run the ball a little bit more, maybe the run defense plays better. But I think it just came down to Washington's was able to run the ball, and it really did affect mm-hmm. them being able to move the chains and bust some big plays. No negative plays for Washington in the run game. Like, that's that's huge. For as good as Texas has been this year. That's crazy because I yeah. think about the Texas TCU game. Six of the first 11 plays against TCU were for negative yards and eight of the first 18, I believe. I'm just remembering that off the top of my head, but pretty sure those were the exact numbers from the broadcast. We all in TCU. The first 18 plays and eight of them were negatives, and then you aren't able to get any against Washington. And I mean, yeah, it's also what we talk about with bowl games when you got a month to prepare, you got good staffs, you can definitely, and especially don't forget about some of the uh, maybe familiarity. Coach K, we thought, would be able to deal with the familiarity of the players, but it also works in the other direction and knowing uh, some of the tendencies of him. No, no TFLs for Texas. But on Washington's 28 official rushing attempts, uh, they only had seven seven carries that went for two or fewer yards. They had a couple a couple you know stopped at the line of scrimmage plays, but at the end of the day, man, they they did a really good job uh, of just again being willing to take like the three or four yard gain and kind of make it a game where you can get the manageable third and fourth downs. Uh, yeah, like I'm looking at it right now, Matt. Like uh, one thing I love about stat broadcast the media feed that we get mm-hmm. uh oh yeah is, their stats are fun yeah they show a, a run stuff rate rushes that are stopped for no gain or loss washington only had two 
Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. I never hear people talk about that stuff on the broadcast, even though like they have that information available in front of them. And it's, it's weird too. Like, but if you look at like what they describe as power, it's pretty much the power success rate that we talk about mm-hmm. uh, runs with two, two or fewer yards to go that converted for a first down or a touchdown. Washington was over five. So, I mean, it felt, it just felt like those, it wasn't necessarily short yardage. And, you know, I know Penix had a couple of, uh, of, of they had a couple quarterback keepers, a uh, little sneaks for first downs. On they only hit one on a fourth and one, uh, but at the end of the day, dude, like I said, those four those four yard runs they were willing to take, they did a really good job of just taking whatever Texas was going to give them. On the flip side, we talk, we talk about Texas never got in a position where they got the run game established, and I don't know where you were where you fell on this, Matt. I, to me, I think it was Sark went into this game thinking. With their 12 personnel, their ability to run the football out of 12 personnel, because they were heavy 12 personnel in the first half. We didn't see that that much in the second half. At least, again, I haven't gone back and watched the game and charted it. But I think Sark was surprised and caught off guard about as far as how bad Texas was along the line of scrimmage on offense. I think, I think, And I think that's why you saw him. The game plan was going to be to give Keelan Robinson his fair share of carries to get going. He just didn't have room to work because you just weren't winning up front. Yep, and that's the one spot where you think if you use the other back in that regard, it maybe could have benefited Texas possibly because you look at Jonathan Brooks, just really good yards after contact numbers, but that's also going up against second and third and fourth stringers of a lot of the crappier teams Texas played. But, yeah, I think I get the philosophy because Keelan's so explosive. You could see that if he just was able to get a seam or an edge, he was going to run away from the defense, and I think Sark had trust in the Texas O-line because across the year, I mean, you look at Texas's O-line being 30th in line yards according to football outsiders and he had Washington at 91st on the D line overall. And then the one thing was, is there was an advantage to the Washington D line in the power success rate where that was one weakness Texas had throughout the season. They were 88th and Washington was about 25 spots better. And that's the same thing flipped on the other side because Washington was pretty good. Texas D-line was good across the board statistically, but Washington in line yards was a top 28 team. Even on passing downs, they were a top five, but that's a little bit noisy. But when you look at their power success rate on the O-line, they were top 22. They were top 31 in limiting the stuff rate, and Texas was only 91st when you average it out for the season. So there was a little bit of a a paper matchup where you could see that the Washington O-line may be able to do a little bit better than we expected against the Texas D-line. But like you said, Texas at least thought they were going to be able to open up some holes because that's if you would have been able to open up a few holes, it wouldn't have mattered. Keelan would have been able to get those chunk yards. Yeah. And then after that, you did see Brooks get – a good amount of snaps, and Brooks looked really good, not only running the ball, but, I mean, they almost busted him on that screen in the first half. It was They ran the same play to him, and he was nearly able to break it along the sideline. It was just a great open field tackle by one of the Washington DBs. On the, then the second half, they get a touchdown off of him. But, yeah, I, I knew that it was going to be good to see or have both of those guys out there. Just a bummer we weren't able to open up the holes for Keelan. Yeah, and basically for Texas, especially in the second half, Really, kind of towards middle and end of the second quarter, the run game basically became the short passing game. Uh, I'm looking at PFF's breakdown, and sometimes they'll adjust it. I'm sure they'll adjust it out of this. They've got Quinn throwing ball, the ball behind the line of scrimmage, eleven or eleven of eleven for 105 yards and a touchdown. That was the screen to Brooks yeah. that they hit. So, uh, and then in the short game, zero to nine yards, Quinn 15 of 18 for 139. 
So one for eight uh, for 49 yards on passes of 20 yards or more down the field. And that was a play to Casey Kane on the last play of the game, yeah. which didn't really didn't really mean anything. Nope. It's, about, it's, the, emptiest, it's the emptiest 49-yard pass completion you'll ever see. Nope. But then there were, say, three other ones that could have really connected to where those numbers – and I think Quinn, as the game got – uh, went further in, got stronger because you could say maybe was a erratic in the first half on a few throws. But I thought Quinn played a great game overall. When you look at the numbers that he put up, they're like video game style, and he was able to put the ball, like you said, all across the field in all the areas he needed, and really didn't put it much in harm's way, risking the turnovers. Um, the uh, the the thing about Quinn Ewers that I really like, and we talked about this. Towards the end of the TCU game, so they started to use more empty formation and more kind of quick timing throws and try to get Quinn into a rhythm and get the ball to Jordan Whittington, and that's when they started moving the ball against TCU a little bit. They made that adjustment earlier in this game, Mm -hmm. and that was when you started to see Quinn get into a rhythm, and I thought at that point, Matt, they were probably, I don't know, like mid-third quarter, when they started taking what Washington was giving them, which they were going to be willing to give Texas, hey, we're going to give you that seven-yard stop. We'll give you that nine-yard out. We're not going to give you the throw over the top. And that's when you saw Jordan Whittington get involved. You saw Sanders get involved. Uh, They tried to get Savion Red involved, the the swings and screens of the running backs. That's when Quinn really got in a rhythm and started to pick his spots. I think – Those are rhythmic throws. I don't want to make this sound like I'm polishing a turd, but – it, that to me is growth by Quinn and Sark to say, no, be patient, take what they're giving you, and you can move the ball and start sustaining drives. Because I think at that point for Sark, I think it was a matter of survival saying, look, if we don't start sustaining drives, our defense is just going to get gassed and then we're going to get run out of here. Yeah, and I mean, those things need to be pointed out because it happens even at the highest levels of football. You look at why there was such an impact uh, and change in Patrick Mahomes last year. I mean, it's funny, it came down to Shane Bouchelle being the guy that had to sort of be the one to talk him into the right psyche and understanding of moving the ball and taking what the defense is giving you. But he admits the first seven weeks of last year, he was forcing the ball into these two highs. We talk about the three high safety looks and impact in Sark's offense, but a lot of that also is the play call and understanding well then the quarterback be willing to take what's underneath same thing that you look at Joe Burrow this year because I mean you look at what Cincinnati did how they beat everybody the the first half of Chase's rookie year they were getting single high looks they were going go balls all over the place and then the defenses adjust <coughs> excuse me whenever the defenses adjusted and it was all these two high looks at the beginning of this year Burrow struggled a lot. He wasn't able to do much, but he was able to do the same thing, and he's taking what defenses give him and makes him so effective. It's why our local product from Austin, Samaje Pirine's been such a big deal because they're willing to throw to the backs in the running game, and when you don't have it from above, take what's underneath. And you brought up the example in the second half. I mean, it was emblematic perfectly when you look. Jordan Whittington in the first half, I believe, had one reception for 11 yards. He immediately got more production on the first reception of the second half. And then it was them taking what they were given all the way across the board to Sanders, to the screen game, were able to move the ball, just weren't able to connect on a few that could end up tying the game and being able to force overtime. It might help if I talk into the microphone, too, for this podcast. Um, yeah, It's important to point out the areas of growth, uh, but I think the thing that disappointed me more than anything, Matt, like I said, the line of scrimmage, and the fact that 
we talked a lot in the offseason because Sark talked a lot about it. Football IQ needed to improve in the areas where football IQ really shows up, situational football. Between, you know, money downs, red zone. And I thought Sark's red zone play calling, by the way, left a lot to be desired. Uh, like, I don't, unless you, I've said it before, man, unless you have Calvin Johnson or Randy Moss, even if you think it's a good throw, the fade in the red zone just makes me want to drive my face through a plate glass window. Yeah. I just, it just irks me to no end. But I digress. Um, but it's it's that stuff. That's the difference between Texas being eight and five and maybe Texas being a double digit win team that's playing in the Sugar Bowl. Yeah, because you had the and two the, games on New Year's Eve as as the Big Twelve champion. Yep, because Tech, you know, was we've already talked about how it was an outlier type game, and then you have the just in bad timing for the first turnover to come through, and then a game like Okie State where you, the play calling really hasn't been married to the situation. You had the win, the finger, then the ineffectiveness throwing it downfield, and then it takes some pl- games to learn from, and then you have those one-score games. Like you look at o- the Alabama game, like you look across the board, Texas did win a close game against Kansas State, but if you flip those one-score games – Texas looks good. It's funny stat that you, I see everybody retweeting right now in the NFL because if you were to look at the Minnesota Vikings, for example, they're 11-0 and in one-score games this season. It's a way that they could have 10 wins at one point and be negative in their point differential. Yeah. If you just flip their their one-score games, they would be 1-14, in yeah. which is remarkable, but it just shows those close games in football really does come down to the things you're talking about, just being at good play calling in the red zone, being able to not have inopportune human errors come up or like win, say win field position. Yep, or exactly what Flip happens when you had the, the 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 you force a three and out, but it's after a punch blocked. They get three points from there. Like yeah. that was a negative yardage drive by the defense. They really did well. That was after the Jaron Thompson turn or the interception. Was it? I thought that the block happened yeah, you had the pump block of Trejo and then it was a field goal immediately after that, which yeah. That gives them the first lead, but I mean, you're talking about just quick little things that can really be the difference when you look yep, at the. You had game. the interception. Texas gets the ball at the minus twenty-seven. They go three and out, and Trejo's punt gets blocked. Yep, and then and they, then UW gets the ball back and gets a field goal. Yeah, I mean, you forced a three and out there, you know. So it's just those few things that can really flip those one-score games, and it's why we always talk about the attention to details and yeah. wanting to win the margins because you can just pick a thing here or there and think, well, that's not necessarily the difference in the ball game. But when you add it all up, and especially over a season, those can be the differences being a team that – because you don't want to – first off, injuries are going to happen. That can yeah. be something that can derail you. But then if it all aligns, you still want to have all those details taken care of. So then in those one-possession scenarios, you're able to go and win those games. And and I, I'll, I'll give Rod credit because Rod talked about this. What was the identity of the offense this year? Bijan and Roshan. Mm-hmm. And you go into the bowl game and you strip away the identity of your offense. So we talked about it being a, and I've talked about it, wrote about it, talk about it being kind of a test drive for maybe what you're going to see from this offense in 2023. And I'm not knocking the running backs, but I think anybody that was expecting them to go be Roshan and Bijan, no. they they weren't going to do that. They're, they, they've got quality runners, but they're not those two guys. You've got... A, a very special generational talent in Bijan, and had it not been for Bijan, and we'd be talking probably about Rojo as a first-team All-Big 12 guy and an yeah. All-American candidate and all these other things. 
Uh, and I think what what people found out, Matt, when you look at those guys and the ability those guys did, when you look at numbers like yards after contact, force missed tackles, the way those two guys maximize runs, they can make you right more often than not when everything how the play develops suggests you're going to be wrong. They can make you right. Yeah, and we saw that with their, their yards after contact just being able to win plays that are negative. It's sort of like they were running back version of having that mobile quarterback when the defense wins a play but you get the better outcome because your players are just more skilled and can do things that others can't do. And, yeah, if you were to look at, I mean, arguably Bijan on a per-year basis is as productive as any running back we've ever seen at Texas. And then Rojo married together to have those two be the best backfield in college football. When you take them out, it's going to impact a lot. But that's why, you know, it's just the Alamo Bowl. It's a bummer, but it's also – I think it's worth pointing out it's good that these are the scenarios that, yeah, it'd be great to be able to win a game in your record on paper that nobody cares about after tomorrow. It would feel good for Texas fans today, but it's not going to be remembered any different if Texas wins or loses that game. And it actually will maybe work in the development of some of the young players. I remember, like you had pointed out, back in Bijan's freshman year, he finished that season so strong the huge game against k-state and then he would have put up 19 yards of carry against k-state yeah Yeah. and then basically would have done the same thing if he would have been given the full game against colorado he could have went for like 300 yards but you see those young players getting significant amount of snaps in scenarios and close game scenarios it really can help even like your young dbs and players like Jade Barron or players that you have seen be very productive yeah. but can really take that next step. I wish Rod was here to play devil's advocate, but if he wanted to, I feel the same way about this bowl game as I did about the last two Alamo Bowls that the, Texas won big Utah. over Utah and Colorado. Mm-hmm. What's it really mean? No. Like you were what you were in the regular season. So – yeah, what does a Georgia t- game mean? Since yeah. then, they've played for three national championships. Yeah. Texas hasn't done that. And Texas crap. is on head coach number two. Yes. Um, it it would have been, like We're you back. said, Matt, it would have been nice. Losing the game, to me, It's it, it, it doesn't, it's not a detriment. It's not a detriment to the trajectory they're on yeah. any more than winning the game would have shown, oh, my gosh, they're ready to explode and take off. Yeah, I wouldn't view them any different coming yeah, into that, today. Yeah, that's kind of where I am. Especially so, with the young players that were playing. I just, You know, man, the more I think about it, like the situational football stuff, it's gotten it's better than it was last year. Yeah. And football IQ on this team has gotten better. Yeah, you can see that within the defense. Yeah, but, man, the fact that you still got a lot of work to do there – that just reinforces when we talked about how bad it was last year. Yeah, we might have undersold how bad it was last year. Oh yeah, I mean it was uh, it was as bad as it could get when you talk about a defense, and it's that's why the 180 that we've seen this season. That then by the end of this season we're talking about well here are the the question marks that we've seen on the offensive side of the ball, and other than say the rush defense last night, it's still I thought the secondary exceeded expectations and. For the season, the defense exceeded expectations coming off of arguably the worst season in the history of Texas football in regards to defense. And we haven't addressed the Xavier Worthy stuff, so let me just say this. I heard Will Muschamp say one time that his kind of his motto when he was a head coach, and by the way, 
Do you guys think I was going to get through this podcast, mm. the last podcast of 2022, without a Will I loved watching mention? some of him, his press conference for the Final Four up there. He, had, he looked sophisticated. He had glasses tie, hanging from his neck. Oh, those glasses are getting shattered tomorrow yes. at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, broken glasses. But uh, now I heard him say, I think it was in South Carolina where he said this, that kind of his view of it was criticize the performance, don't criticize the person. Yeah. So... Had some bad drops. Xavier Worthy had a terrible game, by and large. Uh, that doesn't mean everybody should be ready to fire Xavier Worthy into the sun and, yes. you know, whatever. Texas is a much better football team with Xavier Worthy than without him. Some of the, some Very of the simple. volatility, the vitriol on Twitter is a little bit much. But in that vein, um, if he's going to be a big-time receiver at this program and go down as one of the best guys to play that position here, yeah. Like the two balls he dropped, the the balls in traffic that he doesn't come up with. Mm-hmm. You think about the best guys we've seen do it here. Roy Williams makes those catches. Jordan oh, yeah. Shipley, Quan Cosby, Devin Duvernay, they make those plays. Yeah, and Xavier really, by and large, didn't do that this year. Yeah, I think, and you brought up a good point that I had sort of because I was talking about how you know he's a guy that seems to catch the ball the way old school receivers sort of bring it into the body, mm-hmm. but that could be an issue if say you do have problem tracking a ball because one of the other deep balls before the two drops was one that it looked like it landed near his feet, but it was a very catchable ball because he was he had beaten the defender to the point that he could have ran inside the defender. Yeah. And if he's runs inside, just if he's tracking the ball, the ball puts him into that spot to where he's cutting in front of the defender and he's just cutting, running into the end zone, just yeah. trotting in simple TD. And when you tie the ideas together that he's trying to catch with his body, then the balls like that, that he don't even see because yeah. he's still running in his straight line trajectory. Yeah. It really does maybe think that like, his ability may, I mean, they could be as simple as eyesight. Make sure he goes and gets his eyesight Something. checked, or it could be just a, a, a skill that he needs to improve on. Either way, the one off the hip was one that if you're catching with your hands, you maybe don't. But the other issue was the other deep ball was one that he had to reach out through and went straight through his hands. And other than that, I mean, he still had like seven for 84 and was very productive it's just and it's why we talked about also at the beginning of the season how huge not having Isaiah Nayer because yeah. Nayer would be the deep threat you would not have to put Worthy in that role he was in that role last year but it made your offense so predictable when you only have one human that can run those routes and do those things because of his yeah. speed and then if say we're saying his maybe one of his weaknesses as a receiver would be some of the skills you need to be a deep ball receiver. Now he has a speed to get him there, but when you make your offense more predictable, not having a guy like Nayor that not only can be that take the top off the top guy, it can take the attraction away from Worthy and get him into one-on-one matchups. Because you look at him against main coverage last season, mm-hmm. he was more than four yards per reception per route run which was just crazy numbers huge drop off this season a lot lower than he had been and he normally don't see that unless there's a reason for it and if you're getting a lot of attraction around you that can be a reason his inability to track the ball is the only thing i could think of because if you watch it he get like on the deep balls especially he gets his hands up really late yeah so it's like he's just not seeing it well like i said i don't know if it's a yeah. If it's a technique thing or it, maybe it is a vision thing, I don't know, but yeah. it's it's a it seems like a fixable problem, but it was a problem this year. But I think too, 
you know, you can look at the passing game numbers, but I just look at it for more like what's available to the quarterback in the passing game. And we know Quinn struggled in the second half of the season. But to your point, Matt, Worthy was in that same role. The reason why your passing game didn't tank mm-hmm. by him being in that role and, and him being a little predictable was you had a healthy Jordan Whittington, and then the year you had a fifty catch season from Jatavian Sanders. Yep. So those having those two guys, and then as much as Sark likes throwing to the backs, and you had capable receivers with Bijan and Roshan, and even we saw what Keelan Robinson did in the past game this year. That's that's what kept your passing game from going in the toilet, really. Yep, and that's why why having adding a guy like Nayor would just be the perfect last piece to tie it all together because we had seen like the reason why Casey Kane's getting a lot of those targets is. He's the last guy of the totem pole, and when you're looking about allocating coverage, you're allocating the coverage across the board to guys like, say, Sanders and to Worthy and to Whittington. So the one guy that's going to be left with a possible one-on-one matchup against a guy that's maybe one of the worst cover corners, it's why you had Casey running wide open in games like Iowa State and many other times earlier this season, and it's the same reason that he was open in this ball game, and that sort of why we were pointing out the example that once you get somebody else to be the vertical threat, that guy can end up being worthy getting those advantageous matchups. It really could help the offense a ton. And it was awesome to see Kane step up and play so well, especially after his drops issue in the Iowa State game, because we hadn't seen him play much since then, and that was really big for a guy like him to get out there and get that confidence back. You were about... uh almost 20 yards, about 16 yards per game through the year on average better than you were last year. You're at, you were at 225.4 this year or last year for Texas, excuse me. You're at 241 and change. Yeah. this year. So like I said, you were better is it where you wanted to be? No, but we talked about the reasons why you struggled, but what kept you from just the passing game being a detriment was those other weapons you had where, hey, at least we could throw a bubble to Jay Witt. At, well, at least we could throw a tight end screen to Sanders. Something to to get you get you in some sort of a rhythm. And those are just uh, cumulative numbers right there, but there's a lot of reasons to it too because I would say last year's passing numbers are going to be artificially inflated because you're playing from behind more, so you're throwing the ball more. Yeah. And then the identity of the team this year – was running the ball. So you actually had a lot more production on the ground than you did last season, especially not only because it's not your strength, but you can't do it whenever you're playing from behind as much. So that 240 to 224 may actually be even more impressive than just the straight numbers put out. Yeah. um, Like I said, I'll say this as we wrap up. Um, I think bowl season – I mean, I don't know. I, I stopped doom scrolling Twitter at some point about three in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not an all or nothing deal. Like eight, eight and five to me is the, for a college football team and their fan base, it's the ultimate Warshak test, right? Like, you know, look at the ink block. What do you see? Oh, I see a majestic butterfly. I see, mm-hmm. you know, Bugs Bunny, you know, taking out nine dudes with a claw hammer, like whatever. Like people are going to see whatever they're going to see. A schooner. You can see, you know, <laughs> it's a sailboat. <laughs> uh, you can see totally different things, but uh, I, for me, it's not an all or nothing deal. You can be, where, and where I am for Texas and looking at it, you can see the improvement made through the year. Acknowledge there has been improvement. Acknowledge Sark is doing a lot of things right. 
be cognizant of the fact that there were plenty of missed opportunities this season that could have upped your win total and also be really disappointed in the way it ended with the performance in the bowl game. But yep. it's not like you just completely throw the baby out with the bathwater. Exactly, and you can be disappointed at the way that Texas lost some of the games, but it also is growth in the direction that we wanted. And I had pulled just uh, before we close out, pulled some of the coverage numbers that stood out to me earlier this season and uh, while I'm on it, too, it was the exact numbers for uh, last season against man coverage was 4.37 yards per route run and averaged 22.8 yards per reception. This year it was down to 2.24 yards per route run and 16.5 per reception, which is still, if you were to say, that's uh, above average for any given receiver against man coverage, but it's half the numbers he was putting up last year. And that was sort of something that was the one deficiency that you would hope to not see go down nearly as much. But in coverage, uh, Jade Barron this season, according to PFF, didn't give up a touchdown in his coverage. And if you look at him overall in zone coverage, which 63% of his snaps were in some form of zone, NFL passer rating against him of 54.5, which is elite. It's ending up being uh, 48 targets for only 33 receptions for 121 yards, less than four per reception. If you look at the covered snaps per target, if it's just in the slot, it was 5.2. If it was in zone coverage, it was 5.5. And then if you look at covered snaps per reception allowed, it was one in every seven in the slot, one in every eight from in zone coverage, which is elite, and even in man coverage, which he was super elite in a limited sample last season, this season was still good. 18% of the time ended up just uh, giving up. It was around 10 per reception, a little bit more, but only a 90 passer rating. The one guy that stood out, though, inside man coverage was Ryan Watts, uh, NFL passer rating of that's, only That's kind 46. of Watts' game, right? Exactly. Just, just be physical with Which guys. Which is perfect to have. And just to see that he had that type of production yeah. – in uh, limited sample. The other one this season uh, that stood out main coverage, it was very limited amount of opportunities. It was just 17% main coverage for Deshaun Jameson, but allowed only a 36% reception percentage, and it was a passer rating of 87. So pretty cool to see that he's actually improved in that he regard. Qu- Jameson quietly had a good year. Uh, I'm really excited about the future Terrence Brooks. Yep. But as man, as good as Jalen Ford, Jalen Ford had an All American year, which yep. should, probably should have been the Big Twelve Defensive Player of the Year. Jade Barron, to me, was your most consistent defensive player from Game One through Game Thirteen. Yep, he was. He was great because like we didn't see Jalen Ford in Game One, and Jalen Ford was a guy that I mean he played, but I'm just saying statistically didn't stand up. But he stood out in every game. But Barron. Like it seemed as if he was almost playing with a level of players below him. Like he read things yeah, yeah. quicker. He just looked like a man amongst boys, even though he's the same size as him. He was playing like he was just the dominant figure on the field. It sucks for Jalen Ford because it felt like his worst two games of the year were the opener and the finale. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it just seemed, it just seemed like he whatever tackles he was making. What he finished with seven or eight tackles in this bowl game. I Let don't me find I it. I can pull it up real man. quick. Yeah, man, uh, Deshaun Jameson in zone coverage. Only 47.2 NFL passer rating. So by the numbers, I mean, he had an elite year in coverage, which really helps him maybe for his future. Talking or Jameson. Yeah, Jameson, yeah. for your, your envisioning of him as an NFL safety. Cowboys, make sure he's in your undrafted free agent pool. 
They're they're Trust listening. Me. You'll thank me later. You should actually send you, Jerry Jones a letter. I know you're cheap when it comes to the safety position. Draft Jameson as a safety or Jerry nickel. will take the opinion of I'll anybody. Him. Yeah. Jalen uh, Ford had 10 tackles last night, Matt, but it felt like all those tackles were like cleaning up four or pile. five yards yeah. away from the line of scrimmage. And it's not, I don't, I'm not knocking him. He had a great year. And I, I wrote a story about this week about the great year he had, but it's just, that's, that's the, the bad thing for him is his two worst games were the first game of the year where he didn't have any tackles. And then the last game of the year where yep. again, UW had all that success rushing, running the ball before contact. And you pointed out uh, Terrence Brooks's performance this season, and he had man when he you could tell that he hop, wanted to hop that route, and I think it was McMillan who was on, maybe it was Odunzi, but if they didn't have his inner part of his elbow, that ball is going to be a pick six yeah. coming the other yes. way. Like he had yeah. his hands out, he was ready to go, and it looks as if he dropped it, but that wide receiver just turned into a DB and literally able to just barely disturb his hands. Otherwise, he was gone. The other one that I didn't realize how close it was was. The failed fourth down UW had on their last long drive, uh, the one where Anthony Cook broke on it, it was an incomplete mm-hmm. pass. If Oof. he if he doesn't have like a giant club on yeah. his arm, which by the way, shout out to Anthony Cook for playing pretty much the last almost the last half of the season with a freaking broken forearm. Yeah, it's insane. Um, if he doesn't have that big huge club in the way, he probably picks that ball up. He got a lot closer when I watched it on the replay. And by the way, Alamo Bowl. You treated me well this week. Best experience I've had down there covering this game. Uh, in-stadium replays, you need them really, really bad. No oh in-stadium replays. Wow. Blew my mind. That's yeah, old school. It was brutal. They but used to do that in college. I saw the TV. I had the TV replayed. I looked up, and I'm like, damn, I'm like, he almost picked that off. Yeah. Got clo- a lot closer than I thought. So yeah, shout out to Anthony Cook. Same with deep ball in the first half, the one yeah. that they ended up catching. Yeah. Uh, you know, you got Cook, Jameson. Yeah, Keandre Coburn, Moro Ojimo, uh, Christian Jones is going to move on. He's a guy that got better throughout the year, much better than he was last year. Um, you know, you, you got some guys that are leaving this program that improved in their last year under Sark. And I'll say this in closing. The one position group I'm most excited about in the offseason is the offensive line because I can almost guarantee you there are guys coming back that started this bowl game and mm-hmm. started all 12 games this year. That won't be starting for the twenty twenty three opener wow. because I think the rate of development for a DJ Campbell, yeah. maybe even a NATO Mayazulu, if you can find somebody to to push Jake Majors at center and just give give you some competition there. It, maybe it's Cole Hudson, maybe it's Connor Robertson. We'll see who it is, but I, I think you're gonna see, you're about to see this offensive line get to a point where when you look at them in twenty three, you're gonna be like, all right. That's what a, a conference championship offensive line should look like on the hoof. Yep, and uh, it was cool. We were able to hear from Coach Flood and other assistants, you know, throughout the bowl process and hearing him talk about DJ Campbell, Coach Flood, it sounded like there was one person that he was most excited about. Yeah, man. It, you could tell when he talked about DJ Campbell. He was like, that dude, he's grown as much as any offensive lineman he'd been around in his first nine months. And. I mean, do, do, with Kelvin Banks, I mean, you gotta, oh, God. you've got to, like a franchise left tackle. Yeah, the fact that we just take him for granted now already is uh, like that's how Dude, good trust he me, is. I don't, yeah. I don't, man. Mm-mm. Well, I'm just saying, Those I are... didn't even mention him in the past hour, yeah. and it's only because I already expect him to perform so well. But yeah, him. Another while I'm thinking about those players, Jaron Thompson. 
performed so well last night, and he's a guy also that it's one of those positions that you sort sort of like O-line when you're on the back end of the defense. You don't notice them a ton until they screw up, and then mm-hmm. you notice and you blame them for something. So it's worth at least give them his flowers for when they do well. And yeah, that pick he made, it was a beautiful pick, but he also was right there with the lead. I think he yeah. had the most solo tackles, according at least to PFF on the game. So really good job by Jaron Thompson. But, yeah, Banks, he'll be all-conference first-teamer all the way through the rest of his career. Yeah. Just a bummer. He's one of the guys that I think it's like Bijan. When we saw him at this time, we are like, well, we only got two more years yeah. of Bijan. Or that, that track that uh, Jordan Hicks looked like he was on early. Yeah. Uh, we've seen some other guys like that. Malcolm Brown was one. And mm-hmm. D-Tack, we're like, yeah, he, he ain't going to be here He's for not going to be here too long. Don't plan on him being here for four years. But uh, I do want to say this in closing. We'll get more into some depth chart stuff and some 2023 look ahead next week when the three of us are back. But, Matt, uh, I want to thank Rod, even though he's not here, for uh, his contributions this year. Most definitely. Um, always appreciate Rod's point of view and respect him. I respect Rod Babers maybe more than anybody as far as a football mind him being the football theorist that he is. Agreed. Uh, and I'm very privileged and fortunate and thankful to call Rod a friend. So I want to thank Rod for his contributions throughout the calendar year. Matt, you're the reason why this podcast goes, man. You are the MVP. Uh, you're the glue guy. You hold it together, doing all the stuff on the board and you know, getting actually getting the audio cut and uploaded every week. Uh, so I appreciate you, all the numbers you bring to the table, uh, your contributions. So this started out with me and you 10 yeah. years ago, and – Rod's still the guest who never left. So, well, I uh, thank you. And I mean, I can't thank Rod enough as you just did. But I mean, when I needed somebody in a time when I was looking for work after leaving radio, you were the one that was willing to do this with me. So it's been a fun journey and can't wait to keep it yeah. going. But thanks again for everything you do because you're so damn busy. Like, you're all getting onto that Craig Way schedule where you're in San Antonio, then you're coming back up and then immediately doing the talk show and then sitting down for an hour right now when you could be back with the fam. So thank you for another year. And I'm about to get in the car and go take a nap. That's there, where I'm, do I'm headed to the bed. I bet that'll feel good. <laughs> a little bit. And then you uh, have a little toddler yelling, Daddy, Daddy, come play. Oh, yeah, yeah. I won't be That nap won't be long because I'll be getting woken up with a slap in the face or <laughs> jostled. So it. she acts like a little Jeff Howell. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She just, uh, she'll come in the bed and, like, start jumping on me or that's shaking lo- that's me. That's awesome. Daddy, wake up, wake up. Um, <laughs> so, no, it's uh, it's all good. Thank you, everybody listening. Thank you so yes, much for your support listeners. of Longhorn Blitz for the last decade. Uh, can't believe we've done this podcast this long, but looking forward to another really good year in 2023 uh for so for the last time in 2022 uh i want to thank rod as always for the time and the knowledge and matt thank you for everything you do you're welcome and thank you too for matt for rod for everybody at the austin radio network and the horn 104.9 am twelve sixty, streaming on the horn app and at hornfm.com where you can hear rod each and every weekday on ball don't lie from three to seven Shameless with plug. mike harge thank you matt you can also get myself and craig way each and every weekday on Light the Tower from 10 to noon. And thanks to Matt, you can get all of our archives. Our classic interviews and shows are on the Longhorn Blitz SoundCloud page. Yep, just type in Longhorn Blitz. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. 
Price and coverage match limited by state law. Search Horns 24-7 anywhere you get your podcasts. That's Horns 247. No dashes, no slashes, no spaces. Click that follow button to get every episode of The Blitz when it drops on Tuesdays. And please don't forget to leave us a five-star review. It is very much appreciated. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. For the Horn family, for the Horns 24-7 family, I am Jeff Howe. Happy New Year, and we will catch you again in 2023 on the next episode. You've been listening to Longhorn Blitz with Horns247.com. Remember, for the latest Longhorn news 24-7, visit Horns247.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.